This is CliffCentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. It's just gone on to 1.08 p.m. You're tuned to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name is Kingsley Kipuri, and I'll be with you for the next hour. Feeling pretty hyped, man. Feeling excited. Greg, how you doing, man? I'm well, I'm well. Good to be here again. I'm a bit sad that summer's over, but you know, such is life. I'm sure there's a great poem somewhere about by Robert Frost or something about the change of seasons. You can call in and tweet us if you have that if you have that poem by Robert Frost. Let us know. <laughs> That's fucking funny. All right, time to get into it. Um, a bit of a summary about what we have in store today. First, we'll be chatting to Simon Allison about continental news. So we had the the really tragic news about the 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 shooting, the terrorist shooting in Ivory Coast that happened very recently, and then going on to talking about post-election violence in Uganda. And we've seen reports of 22 people who've died in post-election clashes after the elections they had about a month ago, if not more recently. And then a bit about Angola, whose president is claiming that he'll be stepping down after decades and decades in power. Next, we'll be chatting to Professor Ashwin Desai from the University of Joburg, who wrote a book late last year about Gandhi's time in South Africa and claims that he actually supported the British Empire and was had a disdain for Africans and was actually racist. I think that one's going to be really cool. Do you remember it was uh, about 18 months ago when someone threw white paint on the Gandhi statue in Gandhi Square? Absolutely, and it made it made a couple of headlines here and then, but it wasn't... It, it didn't, for me at least, didn't really tie back into why is this happening. It was more of a strange occurrence rather than a, you know, a political statement about legacy and so on. So I'm really in- interested to dig into that. And lastly, we'll be talking about a bit about um, American elections. So we'll be talking to Brooke Spector, Daily Maverick, know, knower of all things when it comes to American elections, and he'll talk us through what's going on. Now, to finally get into it, I will be chatting to Simon Allison. Simon, I'm sorry you've been holding for a long while. How are you doing? I'm excellent, Kingsley. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll spare you the, the introductions this time because, you know, we, we kind of owe you one. <laughs> what? No, uh, I was expecting another ego boost. That's what I come on the show for. Okay, let's do it. I want to recycle some old ones, though. The Sub-Saharan Sage. <laughs> the, what else did I say? Okay, I've lost it, That's guys. That's my favorite. That's check my back favorite. in next That's time. I'll, I'll do better work. But Simon, to actually get serious, I was so saddened to check. I think I jumped on Twitter or, or, or one of the news sites and to hear about the shooting in, in a country that I haven't known to have to have these sort of things happening in the Ivory Coast. Could you just tell us a bit about this attack in, in the beach town and what, and what actually happened there? Well, you know, it's such a strange one because Ivory Coast is not really known for being a country that has problems with Islamic extremism. Mm, mm. It, um, of course, has plenty of its own political problems, um, plenty of its own violent mm. um, problems. Um, you know, as, as we, we saw a few years ago, where the country nearly descended into civil war. Um, but Islamic extremism really isn't one of the things that Ivory Coast leaders thought they had to worry about. Mm, and mm. now suddenly you've got this attack by, I think it was four or five gunmen um, on a beach resort, um, just a, a little while from, uh, you know, not very far from the larger city in, in Ivory Coast. And, you know, the, the, what's really hard to understand about this is, is why was this place attacked? Hmm. Um, and I think that the reason is partly because other places have stepped up their security game. So, um, you know, the groups that claim responsibility, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, they're looking for places where, A, it's, it's easy, where they can actually, you know, get the job done, mm. um, with relative ease. 
And then B, they're looking for um, a target that is going to really raise awareness of what they're doing. Because, mm. of course, the point of, of, of terrorism, per se, is, is to, you know, by its definition, is to create terror. Mm. And for the, in order for that to happen, you have to have it covered, you have to have it known about. Mm. And, you know, violence in, in, in many countries, and this is a, a tragedy of the modern world, that violence can happen in, in some countries and be considered less newsworthy than when it happens in other countries. You mm. know? So, for example, you know, a few people can die in Paris, and it will be worldwide headlines all over, um, you know, for, for days, whereas uh, the same number of people die in Nigeria, mm. and, well, it happens so regularly that no one really cares. Mm. So um, for a Islamist extremist group trying to make a statement through terror, the uh, one of the key criteria is, is, is what makes it newsworthy, mm. what makes it interesting. And I think that going after countries that don't have a history of... Um, problems in, in this regard they don't really have that aren't an obvious target mm. that's interesting that's why we're talking about it now because ivory coast it was not expected to be attacked and i i find it so uh, i mean fascinating but simultaneously really depressing that you're saying that there's a very sort of distinct pattern and you were talking about the, or not talking but writing about in your recent article about the attacks in bamako in mali and in Ouagadougou in burkina faso and saying that there's a clear clear trendy and the kind of places they attack, the kind of style of the attack and, and therefore and the headlines that then emerge as a result of, of the terror that, uh, that that comes post the attack. Absolutely. Um, if you look at uh, sort of the three headline attacks that have been claimed by Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb, in November there was the attack on the Radisson Blue Hotel in Bamako, Mali. Um, two months later, in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, there was an attack on the Splendid Hotel and then two months after that in Cote d'Ivoire, there was this attack on um, the L'Etoile du Sud um, beach resort. Now, you know, this, this, if it was a sort of police program, you'd be looking at this and thinking, well, it's the same sort of modus operandi. You know, you've got gunmen going in, um, killing people, asking people to recite um, prayers in Arabic if they can. Mm-hmm. They, they survive. If they can't, they get killed. Um, it's the same sort of targets, all hotels. Um, all um, places that are popular with Westerners, um, and, and Westerners have been amongst the dead in all of the attacks. Mm. Um, and then the time scale, you've got two months between each attack. Um, so, you know, what are we in now? We are in March. Um, March. Mm. Um, you know, going forward, you're looking at April, May, we should probably be expecting another attack in another West African country um, at a similar kind of venue. And I think authorities, in particular in Senegal, in Gambia and in Guinea mm. are going to be on especially high alert because they seem like the logical next target. I mean, I can imagine. Um, and and you mentioned that some, I think Fox News especially was reporting um, that that perhaps the the, the presence of a, of a U.S. official at, at this hotel later in the day might have been part of the plan to perhaps injure or send a message to the United States. Do you think there's any credence to that or is that just speculation? It's, it's hard to know. And, and, Fox News was reporting on um, the sort of war on terror in mm. general is um, often quite suspect and sensationalist. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we really need to take it with a grain of salt. But if it is true, um, the, the attack only missed this U.S. official by a matter of hours. Mm. Um, that means that their intelligence is so sophisticated that they had planned, you know, they had intel on the movements of top U.S. officials in um, Cote d'Ivoire, 
Now, that is pretty sophisticated intelligence, um, and it implies that the, the sort of reach and penetration of al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb mm-hmm. is far greater than we give them credit for. So, too, is their organization and, the, you know, simply the quality of, of their intelligence network and then their ability to capitalize on it. Gee, that, yeah, that would be really worrying. And and I, I'm also quite fascinated by, by the context that, 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 that you provide in, in your article, and I recommend everybody go and read it. We'll tweet it on the, on the account just now on at DM Shows at A. Um, is, is you linking this to the, the, the withdrawal or the, or the reduction of the French presence in that region and how you think that could, could perhaps be the reason behind the increased terror we're seeing from uh, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb? This, um, this line of argument, and it is one I, I, I tend to agree with, yeah. came from a guy called Ryan Cummings, yeah. who's uh, the founding director of a, a risk analysis firm called uh, Signal Risk. And he really knows the stuff about um, Islamist extremism in, in West Africa. And, and what he was saying is that the French have actually scaled down their presence. Um, so they, you know, a couple of years ago, they initiated this big operation called Operation Barkhane, mm. um, based in N'Djamena, in Chad, but it had, you know, had sort of bases all over the region. Um, and this was their big effort to really combat um, groups like Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and the Islamic State and, and various other local groups. Um, that effort is sort of being reduced. And, and what Cummings is saying is that this plays a major role because, and, and you know, presumably this is because um, West African governments simply don't have the capacity mm. or know-how to confront this kind of threat by themselves. It, it's simply too large. It's too cross-continental. Too sophisticated, mm. um, you know. I, I would imagine that Al Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb's intelligence network is better than the intelligence networks of almost every single West African country, Jeez. barring perhaps Chad, perhaps Nigeria. Yeah. Um, these guys are, are sophisticated at a level that governments can't handle, so they need outside support, and the French have been providing that. Of course, the flip side to this argument is that the presence of um, colonial forces, yeah. such as the French, in um, you know, in these countries, is often a um, quite a big recruiting tool Absolutely. that groups like Al Qaeda use. You know, we've seen it in Somalia as well with Al Shabaab. That any kind of foreign presence, actually, you know, while it does help the fight against the group, it also helps that group to recruit. It helps them to um, justify mm. what they are doing mm. in in very nationalistic terms, and and we know that that is a very potent propaganda tool. Mm. So I think it's a double-edged sword, and we shouldn't attribute it only to, to the French, but yeah. also to, you know, al-Qaeda itself, um, doing very well in terms of regrouping from a position of weakness mm. several years ago following the French invasion of Mali. Mm. Um, they've now regrouped to, to, to quite a, you know, a strong level, and they are certainly um, competing with the Islamic State for attention on the global scale. I love that you mentioned the, the the competition sort of aspect or rivalry, especially what some people are seeing between AQIM and ISIS. And I'm curious about this rivalry. And I mean, how do you see this playing out over time? What is the what is sort of the logical conclusion of this kind of rivalry and how it's going? It's it's a very good question, and I'm not too sure. You know, you start wondering if if these groups are really in such a intense rivalry, mm-hmm. why are they not fighting each other? Um, if things were really that bad. I'm a little hesitant to um, give too much credence to the idea that what Al-Qaeda is doing is is a response to the Islamic State. 
Um, it, it is a factor for sure, and, and I think it has motivated Al-Qaeda to really get their act together. But we've got to remember that um, this is a group that's been doing these kinds of things for years. Um, you know, these kinds of attacks um, were um, happening before the Islamic State was even created. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a bit of a, a red herring to say that um, you know it's just because of, of the competition. But, I mean, it, it, there's no doubt that, that it plays a factor. And from a simple numbers game, if you have two extremely sophisticated groups um, committing these kinds of acts, it just mm. means there's going to be even more um, terrorist attacks um, than there were ever before. And I think that is what, what we're seeing on, on a global scale and certainly in Africa as well. I hear you, Simon. And I guess it's something we'll just have to continue to watch. And, and hopefully this, this goes the opposite direction and we see a decline. Um, I'd like to pivot to a sort of different part of the continent, to Uganda. So we recently saw elections there, um, and, and there were you know really troubling sort of reports coming out of there by Human Rights Watch. And now we're hearing reports of 22 people killed in post-election violence. What happened? This is a deeply, deeply um, distressing development. Um, the reports are still pretty sketchy on mm. detail, mm. Um, but it seems that in a part of the country that is a stronghold of opposition leader, Kiza Besidje, um, his supporters clashed with pro-government supporters. From the tone of the report, it sounded like that the, uh, sounded like the pro-government supporters initiated the, the fighting. Mm. Um, and these violent clashes um, ended up in, in at least 22 people dying. Um, and th- there is certainly a worry that this could be the kind of um, touch base to, to light the conflagration, because Museveni's election victory was was very divisive and, and very controversial. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Ugandan president has been in power for more than two decades now. Um, he has restricted the space for opposition parties. He has certainly not allowed a free and fair election in the sort of traditional sense. Um, you know, even if he didn't rig the vote directly, he certainly used state resources to um, clamp down on opposition and used state resources to promote himself um, and, and to, to, to run his campaign. Mm. So the election was certainly manipulated at the very least. So we're not dealing with a democratic outcome of, of the Ugandan election, which means we are dealing with um, a lot of very unhappy opposition. Oh, yes supporters, um, and we're also dealing with a, a lot of unhappy government supporters who, you know, have been given a, a tacit mandate to cause trouble. Um, part of, of Museveni's um, pre-election campaign was a sort of the core of, of civilian volunteers, I, I forget what he called them, but it was like, a, you know, a safety officers kind of mm. thing. Um, you know, it was dressed in the skies of, oh, we need civilians to help um you know, do basic policing. Mm. But actually what it has become is, is a sort of de facto militia group Jeez. that is um, running around um, beating up opposition. So, you know, that kind of violence unleashed before the election, mm. it's hard to put it back in the bottle, even after the election, especially when tensions are already so high. So um, I, I, it's a situation that we're following and one that is very, very concerning because it definitely has potential to get worse. And absolutely, and we've seen some of the issues in that region, in Burundi and so on, so it's really just the trend isn't, isn't wonderful. On our final topic, Simon, pivoting to another person who's been in power for, for far too long is President José Dos Santos of Angola. 
a really, really surprising piece of information late last week saying that he was intending to step down as president after the next election. A, a really surprising announcement. Um, I think it's it sort of caught everyone unawares. Now, on the face of it, if we believe um, Dos Santos at his word, we believe that he will step down in 2018. Mm. This is a momentous, momentous announcement, not just for Angola, but I think for the continent. Um, you know, if, if Dos Santos, having been in power for so long, can make a new life for himself mm. outside the presidential palace, if he can show that you can leave office after all that time, and, um, you know, and it's not the end of the world, then this could be an example that some of Africa's other dinosaurs might be able to follow. Um, it could be a precedent that um, is really encouraging for the mm. continent. However, um, there's always a but in these kinds oh, of yeah. situations, and the but is, do we believe President Dos Santos? He has made these kinds of promises before. In 2001, he said he would not contest the next presidential election. Um, then Angola just didn't have another presidential election for something like oh, seven geez. years. Um, and then when it did come, he'd had conveniently forgotten um, his previous announcement. So I, I think we should be very skeptical about um, whether he will step down. It, it does raise interesting questions, though, about who will succeed him. Um, there are two main candidates that have been mentioned. One is um, his son, who is a prominent businessman. Yeah. The other one is uh, the vice president, Manuel Vicente, who um, was head of the state oil company for a long time and is, and is now vice president. He's very influential within the ruling party. Both of these candidates would be very much um, trying to maintain the status quo, I think. Although that doesn't always work. You, know, mm -hmm. you, you look at places like Cuba, where, where Fidel Castro's brother, Raul, took over. Um, everyone was expecting you know, more of the same, and suddenly he, he comes out with completely different economic policies. Yeah. But, you know, even even if it is a new candidate from within the ruling establishment, um, I think we might see a little bit of change. Another name that has been mentioned is Isabel dos Santos, oh who is um, the richest woman in Africa and happens to be um, the president's daughter. Um, she is a very influential politician in her own right, um, more behind the scenes because she focuses on her, her businesses. Um, and, and, and that could be interesting, too. I mean, that's my worry. I mean, if, if one's son and one's daughter are being mentioned in the succession race, and if the corruption is so systemic in Luanda and Angola, is it, is the assumption that Dos Santos stepping down, however unlikely as that may be, is the assumption that he, if he steps down, it's a better life for Angolans? Is that, is there any room for that kind of hope if, if the kind of sort of regime he's led is so systemic in, in its, in its corruption and, and patronage? I, you know, I would like to say yes, that, that there is hope. Mm. Um, I don't think I can in good conscience because um, all of those candidates, they are so compromised by mm. corruption. They are so, you know, they're up to their necks in all of the, you know, all, all the bad stuff that Santos has been doing, they have been um, directly involved with. Um, however, you know, it, it, it could well... Uh, you know, the change from Dos Santos could well spark a broader change in the country. You know, it, it could lead to, um, often these things lead to divisions within the ruling party. Mm. So if you look at uh, ZANU-PF and Zimbabwe, um, the battle over Mugabe's succession is dividing the ruling party to the extent that now Joyce Mujuru, who is, of course, a, a ruling party stalwart, mm. former vice president, has started her own party. 
um, who could be a new opposition who could provide the impetus for change. So, uh, you know, I think the most likely scenario for progressive change in Angola is that what the succession does is it upsets the balance of power within the ruling party and that elements of the ruling party itself break away and challenge and challenge the status quo. Couldn't put it better myself. Simon, thank you so much for making the time for us and as for always giving us such great insight. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you, Kinko. Fantastic. Perfect. If you're just tuning in, we're just about halfway through the Daily Mavic show on Cliff Central. After the break, we'll just dig into some other issues, including American elections, as well as grappling with this thing called legacy. How do we think through and deal with the legacies of, of, of great men and women from the past uh, who are often revered as saints or as sort of evil, demonic characters? And, and there's often a lot more nuance than that. So we'll be, we'll be talking a bit about that. I'll speak to you in just about five minutes. Informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on Cliff Central. Good afternoon. You're back with us on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Just about halfway through the show. Still taking tweets about this Robert Frost poem we're trying to, to find about the changing seasons or trying to be cultured. Craig went to a really Nothing good to school. So Craig went to a really good school. So he's, he's just holding out on us because he knows deep down it's so obvious. It's like, come on. It's not the road not taken. It's Okay, there's one called reluctance here that we're, we're going to look at just now. Also, we had a small prize that we were running last week. Um, so Solomon, thanks for always engaging with us so well. We'll just tweet you for the details on, on, on the little special something we've got for you. Hopefully you can come by the by the studio. We can actually get to meet some of the people we engage with on Twitter. It's a bit strange just... You know, talking to people that we never get to, to meet. I guess that's, that's right. the radio gig, though, right? Are we still waiting for the guest on the line? Yeah, I think we're just waiting for Brooke Spector. Um, we'll be talking a bit about American elections that we, both Greg and I, have been following quite closely. And I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling the burn, Greg. I'm really feeling the burn. How about you? Man? You're a Bernie Sanders I'm, fan. I'm a Bernie Sanders Why? fan. Why? I haven't been sold. So I feel like I knew so little about him. Whereas, I mean, compared to a Donald Trump or a Hillary Clinton, and the more I hear about his consistent sort of, uh, pro-black American stance and policy long, long throughout his career since his, you know, his younger days. It just really inspires me. But, you know, I'm not the expert on that. We've got an actual expert on the line. Brooke Spector, can you hear us? Yeah, can you boost your gain just a little bit? Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> Duncan is laughing. I'm not sure he knows what that is. Okay, perfect. Okay, perfect. We can hear you just fine. Brooks, I know we're calling okay. you a bit earlier than planned. Thanks for making time. Not to worry. Okay, perfect. Uh, Greg, are you good to jump in? Yeah, Brooks, we're going into the primaries today. Uh, I think, what is it, five states going into into the nomination primaries? Can you just tell us a little bit about what to expect? Yeah, hi, Greg and company and your, your audience and all the people. That good to have you. And all, and all that. Uh, we are not just going into primaries. We are deep in the midst of a, of a snowstorm's worth of a, at this point. There are five, <laughs> there are five big ones today. It's the second Super Tuesday, mm. more or less in a row, uh, Florida, Ohio, uh, Illinois, Missouri, and North Carolina, both parties, uh, all those states at the same time. So there's massive interest. The key, uh, the real key right now, is that in both Ohio and Florida, these, are, these have become winner-take-all primaries rather than the previous version up till now, which were proportional so that if you won 35% of the vote, everybody else had lesser numbers, you mm-hmm. got effectively 35% of the delegates. In Ohio and Florida, both of which are big states, high po- large population, 
not necessarily area, but lots of people, and people translates into votes, they are winner-take-all states. And if you get both of those plus proportional shares of the other three, it has been one heck of a day for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, obviously, taking, you know, the two parties in sequence in in the Democratic primary version of things, the the answer is a little bit more clear-cut, at least if you believe the surveys and the pre-polling and and all of that, likely the... Hillary Clinton's looking looking like she's quite strong. Hey, Kingsley's going to be very disappointed. He's a he's quite a big Bernie Sanders fan. Feel the burn. Uh, sorry about that. But, I mean, uh, Hillary's still going to nail it this time. Uh, it, it's likely she'll do quite well in Ohio. Perhaps even uh, past the fifty percent mark, so that if there are any spoiled ballots, it won't matter much. And in Florida, she's she's already been labeled a prohibitive favorite, mm-hmm. and. If she splits the other three, then it's been a really good day for her, and it puts her on course to, as she picks up a few more primary wins, proportionately or in whole, mm. uh, she will have wrapped it all up well before the party convention at the end of July. So so essentially with the Democrats, uh, by the end of today, we could have a decent idea of, you know, unless unless anything very bizarre happens, uh, who, who their candidate will be. Yeah, well, lightning can strike, as it did in Michigan. The polls were all wrong, right down to the last one. Um, and there's always a bit of a, of a problem with polls in the U.S., because traditionally, uh, although they have the methodology worked out well, uh, and they can structure uh, the number of people they need in the various uh, niches or cells, uh, in ethnicity and urban versus rural and suburban, and male versus female, and by age, and by by political coloration, um, what they do is tend they have tended to rely on fixed line landline telephones to make these calls. And just like in South Africa, the number of people, especially younger people, switching over from a life where they're somehow tethered to a landline, as opposed to cell phone, like I'm talking to you folks now, mm-hmm. uh, has has grown significantly, continues to grow. And so unless they're really, really careful and structure it really rigorously so, uh, they're going to underrepresent uh, people who don't have uh, landlines, and that's going to skew the results. And in Michigan, that may well have been the difference. Mm, so also, the, web, the weather was good, and more people came out than <laughs> they expected. So, forth. so, 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 with Hillary Clinton's support, it seems some people have been questioning whether she still does have support in the in the Midwest, and with um, sort of sort of with the white working class um, can sort of sorry voters. Is that does that look like it's waning? Well, I mean, it probably is, but remember the primaries are not a snapshot of the entire electorate. They're mm-hmm. not even a snapshot of the entire, of the, uh, let alone the entire population. Um, and if you, if you vote in a primary, you disproportionately are interested in the electoral process. You are a participant in it, perhaps even, thank you, perhaps even an activist in a way. Mm-hmm. And that skews the numbers. In Hillary Clinton's case, she's built over many years uh, from the time, in fact, that she was um, the spouse of the governor of Arkansas, which is also a southern state, um, she has built a, a a very solid relationship with the African-American community in the United States, and that is a disproportionate share of 
activist voters in Democratic primaries, and especially so in southern states. And North Carolina is a southern state, and so to a considerable degree, obviously, is Florida as well. But even in the big Midwestern states, which are also more urban than many of the smaller in population states where primaries have already happened, the African-American vote is significant as well, especially within, as I say, the Democratic Party of activist voters prepared to go to a primary. Um, and so it is reasonable to assume that in Illinois and Ohio and even Missouri, uh, there will be uh, a disproportionate number of African-Americans who vote voting for Hillary Clinton. Even in Michigan, it was still two to one. Uh, African-Americans for Clinton and opposed or not for Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders, at this point, the the commentators and the commentariat, as I like to call them, are already starting to say that he wasn't really expecting to win. He was expecting to shift the rhetoric of the Democratic Party to the left to embrace the kinds of issues that he favored, which is a little different than saying you're trying to win office. Mm Mm-hmm. If we look at the other side of uh, the other side of things, um, Donald Trump still, I think, to many people's disappointment, uh, is in the lead in 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 the race so far. But do uh, John Kasich, uh, Marco Rubio, and Ted Cruz have any sort of chance? Well, to, to call Donald Trump a disappointment is is a is, that's when they do the next head of the next Oxford Unabridged Dictionary <laughs> at that point that goes right in there in the new definition: disappointment, outrage horror or screaming into the darkness, I don't know. Um, But he has so mesmerized such a a portion of Republican-leaning voters that it is likely, again, if you go according to the polling data, it is likely that he will be uh, dominant in Florida, North Carolina, Illinois, Missouri, and even squeak out a narrow, narrow win against John Kasich in Ohio. Kasich's the, you know, he's the governor of Ohio. Uh, he's been a very popular governor. He was uh, he was a nine-term congressman from Ohio before that, so his roots are really deep. Uh, and he's, he spent a lot of time campaigning, and his argument has been that, you know, he's a man who knows how to run things, manage things. He's rebuilt the Ohio economy, et cetera, et cetera. Many of those arguments are they're not untrue, uh, and he's hopeful uh, to keep the anybody but Donald Trump forces alive with a win in Ohio. And again, because it's a, a winner-take-all state, that would be a tremendous boost to him and a kick in the shins to Donald Trump's implacable run toward the presidential nomination. Uh, if he loses Florida, however, that we're talking now Marco Rubio, who was Florida native and senator from Florida. If he loses Florida, uh, he's finished. You'll see him come out and say something along the lines of the results have not been as we expected and hoped, and I am putting my campaign in suspension right now, and I urge everybody and anybody who can to vote against Donald Trump in the next set of primaries, etc., etc. The difficulty for Donald Trump right now is because in none of it, basically, up until now, in none of the states has he swept the boards uh, in primary terms, it's all been proportionally divided up between him and his nearest competitor, Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. If you took all the delegates that have been won as a result of these votes from everybody but Donald Trump, uh, do it yourself at home. 
you'll discover that Trump has won fewer delegates than everybody else put together. But he's still won the most delegates on his own. Yes, he has. But what that does is it speaks to the question of whether or not he will achieve that magic number Mm -hmm. of 50% plus one. Mm-hmm. So, do do you think are we likely to see perhaps after perhaps after these primaries where where some of these guys who are against Donald Trump are trying to win their home states or where they're quite strong, are they likely then to sort of throw their lot in in behind one other strong candidate? Well, um, the the blood is sufficiently bad between uh, Trump and Ted Cruz and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and Marco Rubio and Donald Trump that uh, that it's hard to it's hard to see them just all lining up obediently behind the Donald. Um, and John Kasich is still campaigning as if he were the only adult in a room of squabbling kindergarten students uh, as the teacher has gone out for a break. Um, and if that's true, it's going to be very difficult to see Marco Rubio throw himself into the Trump camp because they've already had uh, a spat that... Um, included a discussion of the size of, of Donald Trump's genitals. Uh, it's kind of hard to move backwards mm-hmm. from, from mm-hmm. that level of discussion, or upwards, I guess. Um, uh, Ted Cruz has um, has sort of taken a blood oath that there's no way in, on, on this planet in his lifetime that he's going to support uh, Donald Trump uh, until the bitter end, uh, although they've all taken pledges that they'll support the nominee. And uh, Kasich um, is still holding out for the idea that if he can win in Ohio, hope is not lost for the, anybody but Donald Trump forces. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Wednesday after Wednesday afternoon our time, when, uh, early, early Wednesday morning uh, U.S. time, uh, it's going to be a lot of news. Now, Brooks, in, in, in those last few sentences, you used a, a number of sort of blood metaphors. But in this election campaign, there has recently been literally blood spilt. So at Donald Trump's, um, some of his events, there have been protesters and scuffles. Um, and obviously with everything we've seen coming from Trump with some of the, the sort of racist, uh, nationalist type of rhetoric, things seem to be, or at least watching from, from over here where we're not Americans and it's, it's a little bit hard to understand what's going on, but things seem to be rising towards some sort of, tipping point of extreme and blind anger. What's what's going on? Um, well, I, I, you're quite right. I mean, the, there has been blood spilled. Fortunately, nobody has been seriously injured, and certainly nobody's been killed yet. Um, I mean, there are countries where the election results are routinely include a line at the end of the story, and in, and in fighting so far, 10 or 15 or 120 people have been killed. That you haven't seen in the U.S. But this reflects nothing so much as uh, the 1968 election and campaign, which I remember because I'm like twice your age. And I, <laughs> at least. At least. At least. <laughs> and I, I do recall it very vividly. Um, and that, of course, took place at the peak of the Civil Rights Revolution, right in the midst of the Vietnam War and the protests against it. Uh, and a highly unpopular president in the person of Lyndon Johnson. Um, and among Democrats, the, the squabbling and fighting was severe at the convention. There were thousands of people protesting. Uh, it was quite extraordinary. Um, and on the floor of the convention hall, um, 
Mayor Daley of Chicago, among other people, uttered an obscene word that anybody with even the slightest capability to read lips uh, could could see, even if on television they couldn't explain what he just mm-hmm. said. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you still don't talk about on television, and the cameras caught him for all eternity saying that to another delegate. Um, but the, the, the Trump candidacy has really popped the cork out of the bottle of anger and fear among a significant minority of people. Uh, and I still say minority because it, it obviously is not the vast bulk of the nation, but it is, I tend to think of it as several dynamics that work simultaneously that have given rise to this. Uh, the first of them is the demographic change in the country or the perception of the future demographic change. So whites, uh, as, is, is that whites perceiving that they'll be overrun? Smaller or? and smaller in mm-hmm. number, power, influence, and prestige, yeah. Uh, especially, I mean, if, if you have a Ph.D. in economics and you're working in a well-endowed think tank or university, mm-hmm. that isn't an issue for you. If you were a tool and die maker on a subcontractor to a heavy industry, a heavy machine tool manufacturing plant in Illinois, it's now really, really relevant to you. Um, or if you have a cousin who was working there, that's one dynamic, the, the demographic shift that, that's, that seems to be ongoing and is tied up with the uh, rising tide of impact, influence, and place of people other than the old-style white working class. Um, but the second dynamic, and it reinforces this, is the the globalization of industry. Jobs have bled out of the U.S. in those kinds of things, and they've shifted to East Asia first, Japan, Korea, and now to China, Southeast Asia, and South Asia, and even as far afield as places like, like Madagascar and certain countries in Latin America. Textile workers have lost many thousands of jobs. Um, small manufacturers of household goods, consumer products, um, they're dying out as jobs, steel plants, obviously, mm-hmm. as well. And what that does is this fear of or loathing of the impact of globalization ties up with this demographic. Then the third part of this puzzle uh, or this this uh, tripart relationship is Donald Trump managing to channel that anger and that fear perfectly. He's got ten years of television. He's the perfect pitch man. He knows how knows how to sell things, whether they're ephemeral or or concrete and real. And he's basically said, "You're right to be angry. I understand. Feel your pain. We will fix this. We'll build a wall against the Mexicans." We'll put up prohibitive tariffs against the Chinese. We'll win in our negotiations. We'll make the country great again. And that has, if you're fearful and angry, uh, mm. that kind of rhetoric can have a real resonance. Um, and then if you have other people who just happen to almost always look like uh, darker-skinned people eager to pick a fight as well, show up as demonstrators, then the gloves come off. Uh, Trump, of course, has, has managed to say, it's not me, I have nothing to do with it, I can't help this, uh, which is nonsense, because he had, all he has to do is stand up in front of his mobs and say, mm-hmm. I want you to take an oath with me that we will not you know, start punching the opposition, and they'll stop, because they believe in him. But he hasn't done that. Mm-hmm. Instead, what he said is, 
Well, I think he'll pay the legal costs over by Bernie Sanders. You know, mm. so is, is is this moment right now, Brooks? Is it a defining moment? Do you think for the years to come? Well, it's doing one thing: uh, the, the the Trump phenomena, together with the Sanders phenomena, is pushing politics in the country toward perhaps, and you know, have to underline that word, paint printed in red and do it in italics and big bold. <laughs> um, perhaps leading to a realignment of the political parties. Um, in other words, the kinds of people who support either party, the issues that are the most salient for the party, and the way in which the party leadership and the party candidates frame the issues for the electorate. And, I mean, a realignment is not, un- is not unusual. Uh, it's happened numerous times before, usually over nation-defining kinds of issues. And, uh, and, and, and we're also seeing in certain places like the UK, where Jeremy Corbyn got elected opposition leader, and in certain other countries there's a move towards almost uh, neo-fascist type movements and, and, and subtler variations of them. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it's a global phenomena to a considerable degree that the old style of politics uh, is losing its effectiveness and losing its ability to capture and hold voters. Fifty years ago, if you were a political scientist and someone said, tell me who John is going to vote for, the political scientist would have asked, okay, what's his, what's his racial and ethnic background? How does he worship? Uh, what does he do for a living, and where does he live? And with that information, you could be about 99% accurate in saying mm-hmm. who he was going to vote for. Mm-hmm. Can't do that anymore. And that's the loosening of the party structures, the loosening of party allegiance, and we have to add one more defining element, and you and I are doing it right now, mm-hmm. and that's this, the impact of social media, the Internet, and uh, this you know, in-your-face, instant communication and the delivery of news and little batches, you know, almost before you have a chance to think about the last one. Brooks, what a wonderful sort of summary and insight into what's going on. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Uh, Thank you so much for making the time for us. Well, I guarantee you we're going to have at least one more conversation about this. I mean, between here and, and what? Is it January when the person actually gets, you know, steps into office? I think I think we're going to have a couple more of these. Yeah, the election is the 8th of November. November? The conventions are the last week of July, and there are a number of primaries since, and then the campaign really gets hot from about September, the first Monday in September onward, so 8th November, and then the inauguration is the 20th of January. Absolutely. So we'll all mark our calendars and make sure that we're getting your expert insight between now and then. Happy to do it, anytime. Perfect. Thank you very much. For just tuning in, we're chatting to Brooke Spector, um, who's, who's really giving us some great insight into all things American elections. You can follow him on Twitter on at Parkhurst1, and we've been sort of live-tweeting the show as we go along. Going into the really tiny last bit of the show as we as we wrap up, Greg, you were at a press conference yesterday where the finance minister was was sort of, I suppose, supposed to report back on his trip to Europe and, and other countries where he was sort of trying to reassure people that South Africa's economic and financial situation is, is on the right track. Um, and, and, and a lot of questions that came up ended up being about the issues that we're seeing uh, between him and SARS. 
I mean, uh, between him and the Hawks, sorry. Issues between his and, time. And him and yeah, Sars, his, yeah, him and Sars and him and the Hawks. So, I mean, you were at the press conference. I wasn't. So, I'm curious, how did do you feel like he got his message across? What, what actually happened there yesterday? Well, first of all, his key message was, and when he walked into the press conference, mm. he said, I'm excited to see so many people are uh, interested in investor sentiment because um, that's what he was speaking on. And he yeah. said, that's all he's going to speak about. Mm. And... But of course, soon as he, soon as questions opened, uh, he was asked about issues with the Hawks and the, the sort of rivalry. It was not, not just the Hawks, but the Gupta family, um, uh, allegedly offering the job, uh, of finance minister to his deputy finance minister. So, but first of all, so I think it is actually important to touch on the, uh, the issues of the economy that he spoke about. I'm sure it's supremely important, surely. It certainly is. I think he spoke to something about like 250 different investors who, mm. I think managed trillions worth, um, yeah. tr- I think trillion yeah. of dollars worth, yeah. um, of, of assets about South Africa and, and trying to reassure them that I think the country has, um, a strong history, culture and commitment of fiscal discipline, meaning we're not just going to blow cash on, yeah. on everything because now times are tough. Um, and also just talking about different regulatory frameworks, uh, the labor environment, struggles like, um, um, energy capacity and, and it sounded like, of course, he's going to say the trip was very positive, mm-hmm. but it sounded like he was also asked some hard questions, particularly on the on the political front, um, with President Jacob Zuma firing former finance minister and Chancellor yeah. last year. So, I think Pravin Gordon is a is a very good public speaker, and I think he, if you want a guy to omit confidence about the economy, mm. and if you want a guy who is uh, calling for labor, business, government, and, and just all sort of yeah, sectors of society yeah. to unite behind a positive goal mm. to stabilizing the economy, avoiding rating downgrades, and then in the long term, boosting growth and reducing mm. unemployment. Mm. He's your man. And I think he did that very well. On, on the issue of whether his, his deputy minister, um, ABC Jonas was offered, uh, the minister, the position of finance, yeah. uh, finance minister by the, the Guptas the and, uh, Zuma's son, uh, Durazane Zuma. He said he doesn't know. And when he asked, will he ask his deputy whether, you know, whether that actually happened? He yeah. said, frankly, that's my business and not yours. Um, on, I think the issue, I think further on that issue, he said, when pressed, he sort of said, I don't know about that, but my silence, you know, says a lot. Says a lot. Which, you know, we were sort of, every, the journalists looked at each other in one of those like, little ooh. moments when, yeah. Um, on, on, he also had, it's, it's, it's obvious that there are problems between him and SARS Commissioner Tom Moyane, yep. where Moyane's looked at as a, as a proxy for Zuma and, and a number of other people, and clearly he and Prof. Gordon do not get along. Um, Gordon made made clear that us media are getting it all wrong where we're, where we're pretending that that's a fight between equals. He said they're not equals. He's a minister. Moyana is a commissioner of of SARS. And I think that that also said a lot about what he thinks of their relationship between Jeez. them. So he says, you know, I'm 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 the minister. Ultimately, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that, really. And I. Uh, now, I would actually like to for for anyone listening just to check out the website on on Daily Maverick because this stuff is. Has a long history these battles in, between SARS and Gordon and with the Hawks and it's very complicated as well. But where I think I think we're putting out quite a lot of work on it. And if if you want to look into some of the explanations and history behind this stuff, I'd follow I'd follow some of the work. Absolutely, Marian Tam, you of course, Stephen Koitas. So I mean, at least every day more and more content on that with great context and history. Okay, unfortunately, that's all the time we have.
um, just a parting shot. Just remember that we're trying to avoid the economic downgrade. So just in your different sectors and your personal capacity, let's let's just focus on on getting the economy back on track. Thanks, we'll see Minister. you next week. We'll see you next week, one to two p.m. Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. The Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. Cliff Central. The revolution. I've got something important to tell you. CliffCentral.com.